Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. Your life is your startup. You're an entrepreneur. You're a startup entrepreneur, but your life and, and the currency of that is the love in your life, which should be explosive and magical. The right partner for somebody who's a life entrepreneur is somebody who helps you understand that nothing matters. Nothing matters. It's all just fluff. It's all just the world, you know? And, and if you fall on your head, it doesn't matter. And if you fail, it doesn't matter. And if you go bankrupt, it doesn't matter. Because what matters at the end of the day is love. And love is going to be there. What we're talking about is the fine line between excellence and obsession. And, and you find any professional athlete, any professional musician, any professional, anybody who's really great at what they do, and they're going to be they're going to be just walking that line and sometimes they're going to be on the wrong side of it. The happiest ones are excellent and not obsessed and the unhappiest ones are way over on the obsession side. Now, why is that? Hi, everyone. My guest today is Arthur C. Brooks. I was really excited to talk to Arthur because his latest book, From Strength to Strength, just felt really special to me and something that I was excited to share with you. Arthur has penned 12 other books. He is a New York Times bestseller, so you might know some of his other books, Love Your Enemies, The Conservative Heart. And if you go to his website, it says, you know, basically his passion right now is how to live a better, happier life. And From Strength to Strength puts out, in just such a beautiful and clear way, kind of these arcs in our life and how do we jump from one from our younger years and and maybe prior to our midlife into the next to give us long lasting purpose and sense of satisfaction and connection and and where should we be investing our time he talks about you know eulogy virtues and resume virtues and it's I just think it's important to keep talking about these things because we live in a world that's very loud and it says, hey, the more successful, the more driven you are, you know, we talk about success addiction, the more money you make, the more shiny things are, the more attention you get, then you'll be happy. And we know it's not the case, but we just need those healthy and scientific reminders with a million examples from history. You know, whether it's Darwin, you know, you would have thought that Darwin felt pretty good about his work at the end of his life, but it's not the case. So I just was really glad that we got to sit down and talk about it. Some of the other things, I mean, Arthur's had a lot of jobs. He was a professional French horn player. He ran a think tank in D.C., the American Enterprise Institute. He is a professor at Harvard. So his ability to communicate his intelligence, his curiosity, but really his heart and compassion I just think we need more of it. So I hope you enjoy the show. So Arthur, thank you for joining me. I really, I really just want to tell you, I loved your book. Thank you, Gabby. What a great honor to be with you. What a delight. And to talk to your get to talk to your audience, probably about something different than what they hear about ordinarily, right? Well, it's all connected. You know, I have to be honest, the longer I get into the space of self-care, whatever people want to label it as health and fitness, wellness, whatever they want to say, I I actually think um, you start when you start really drilling down on things, the universal part of really one of the things feeling good is your is your spirit and your ability to continue to expand and grow. And that doesn't necessarily mean for me like, oh, you get more or you have you know, more accomplishments, but the notion of real expansion. So your book for me, Strength to Strength, um, actually is is really right in our wheelhouse, if you will. Yeah, you want people to live better, happier lives. Uh, you know, the, the wellness and fitness part of it should be complementary to it. Unfortunately, for too many people, it's one of the things I've done a lot of research on, wellness and fitness is actually antagonistic to a, a lifestyle full of prosperity and happiness. Yeah. Well, so, you know, six pack abs can often be against actually functional movement. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's I mean, like literally, 
Literally, physically and metaphorically, right? Like, so this idea of like, I should look like that and I'm shredded. And you go, yes. And it's completely, for a lot of people, completely non-functional to look like that in a resting position. So I think it's, it's true because our, our whole thing is how do we train the organism to be better and more effective? And so ideas like you have in strength to strength, let's just dive in. And I'd, I really appreciate that really your personal story, uh, and maybe we can just start there, you know, being, well, basically, who knows that they're a prodigy in a musical instrument? How old do you have to be? Are you seven? Are you eight? And people are going, oh, Arthur is very talented at yeah. the French horn. Like, well, how does that show up? It's such a weird thing. I know. It's uh, America's a great country. You can be a prodigy in the French horn. The, uh, I started the violin when I was four and piano when I was five. And I really got involved in the French horn because I liked it and I was really good at it when I was about eight. And it was clear from the very beginning, just from the very first days playing it, that I had a lot of uh, sort of an unusual ability to be, you know, to play the French horn. And, you know, it's there's so many things you can do. And the key thing is finding something you're really good at and then focusing your your passion on it in a healthy way, which I, I wasn't entirely healthy about it. And there's lots of things in the book about that. But the whole point is I learned how to get good at something. I learned how to master something, learned how to master. It's very, very much like athletics, which, of course, is your world, being a professional athlete except that it's more fine motor skills as opposed to gross motor skills. But the, all of the discipline turns out to be the same. And so the result is my entire childhood was all about discipline. It was all about practice. It was always, always about dominating my own passions and subjugating them to something that was bigger and better. And I'm still getting the benefits of that. I'm 58 years old and I haven't played a concert in almost 30 years. And I'm telling you, I'm still a French horn player. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, well, actually I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that and say really is your Arthur. And one of the things you have done very, very well is play the French horn and all of those lessons and that ability to hyper-focus and learn. And, and I, I, cause I think, you know, and you talk about this and we'll get into it, this whole notion of like identity all the time. Yeah. Cause I've gone through it like Oh, you're that volleyball player. Well, no, I'm Gabby. Yeah. And one of the things I have done, um, but I, I know what you mean, all of the schooling. So you're 19, you're kicking ass, you're traveling around, uh, doing, a, you know, 100 concerts a year and things like that. And, you know, you start to notice that it's different. And your whole thing was like, oh, I'm going to be the best French horn player in the world. That's it. That was what I was going to do. And again, a lot of what you just said, it shows this complicated relationship that people have with excellence. So there's the good side, there's the light side, which is the discipline, which is the ability to focus, which is the ability to dominate anything. Because how do you get a really popular podcast? Well, first you become a professional volleyball player. I mean, the truth is all of those things are fungible, but then there's the dark side. And the dark side is the unbelievable self-objectification that comes from saying, I'm going to be number one in something. Ordinarily, by the way, that comes from the objectification from your parents who say, oh, Gabby, you're so good. You're, you get such good grades. You're so good at what you do. You're number one. And then, of course, you start to see yourself as a success machine where people are going to love you if you succeed, where you're going to feel good if you succeed. And so the result of that is that you become a success addict, very self-objectifying kind of person. That's the dark side. So we got to recognize mm-hmm. that everybody who's listening to this and they want to be great at what they do, good for you. There's the wonderful parts about that. You can, you, you're going to get what you want. Your, your dreams are going to come true. You just got to have the right dreams. And that's the tricky part, isn't it? Well, <laughs> you know, for me personally, I fell into everything. So actually it was all, all along the way, like a discovery, which I think really protected me. Hmm. It was never an expectation. It was like when I got a scholarship to college, it was sort of like, oh, really? And I was like, I know, right? Because I was late. And then when I went to play professionally, it was like weirdly. So I think that really protected me. But you have three children. Yeah let's let's I want to use that for a moment because you said that like we we can I have three daughters it's like you ha- we use these languages as parents all the time like you're really smart and you're really funny and you're blah, blah, and all these things it's like that fine pocket of how you know loving our children and supporting them with belief right but maybe maybe you could talk about, did you figure out, have you figured out ways to kind of encourage them without these big, you know, fat labels that they go, Oh, that feels good. So I'll just keep repeating that. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. And I've thought about that really a lot. And part of the reason is because I went through this as one of these kids who's ultra good at something and completely objectified by that and going through the career and having the career blow up and, and all that kind of stuff. But part of it is I'm a PhD social scientist. And so I should be able to turn my microscope on myself. And the way that I did that, I mean, my laboratory is life. I mean, my life, if I, if I hear you explaining to somebody in, the, in the, the Starbucks line behind me that your heart has been broken by somebody, I mean, keep your voice down. I might write a book about it because that's my laboratory, basically. <laughs> and, and really, my, my test study subjects are very often my own children. So I thought about this an awful lot. You want them to have confidence. You want them to feel special. You want them to feel uh, like they can achieve excellence, but you don't want to you don't want to make them into something such that they're objectified in this particular way. So what I did with my own kids is, you know, each each one of these kids is really really different. I asked, I, I treated, look, your life is your startup. You're an entrepreneur. You're a startup entrepreneur, but your life and and the currency of that is the love in your life, which should be explosive and magical. That's the whole idea. But the only way we're going to do that is by having an original startup. So I treated my kids like startup entrepreneurs with their lives. And I'm VC, right? And, and again, you know, I'm, I'm like, I got to invest. So, so, so therefore, I need a business plan. So I asked my kids when they were in junior high and high school to put together a business plan for what they were going to do with their lives. And they were all very different people. My first son was academically very gifted. And so his, his route took him through. He went to Princeton. And then he came out and now he's a math teacher. He's a middle school math teacher. He's the one who's getting married this week. He's 24 years old and that's his life is very, and, and he built it. That was his life. My, my middle son, he, he was an unbelievable athlete. He was a semi-pro cyclist in, in, in high school and, and he got a scholarship to be a cyclist, but he looked at it and in his business plan, he said, I want it. I don't want it. So he went, went and worked as a farmer And then he joined the Marine Corps. He's a special ops Marine. He's a scout sniper in the Marine Corps. And my little girl, she said, I want to see the world. And she made a run for the border after COVID and enrolled in a university in Spain. She she goes Mm -hmm. to university in Pamplona, Spain. Now she's a Spanish citizen because my wife is Spanish. And uh, yeah, and so, but she's doing her own thing too. It's unbelievable. And and uh, each one of them has done that. And so the result is they're finding their own path without my manipulation. That's the whole idea. And I can cheer them on and I can invest. A good venture capitalist doesn't say, here's what you have to do. A good venture capitalist says, figure out what you're going to do and make it original and make it beautiful and make it good. And then I'll invest. And that's how I'm trying to do it as a parent. Did you ever, with your wife, uh, with Esther, like, you know how weirdly we have things that really worked for us? Like you, for example, uh, you know, let's say you started in the route of music in the beginning. I mean, you've done many things since then, but we, I feel like sometimes our filter gets so influenced by what really worked for us that the temptation to try to slap it on our kids is so powerful that uh, like I have a daughter that's very tall and athletic. She's very good in school. And I actually have to check myself and be like, Oh yeah, that's good too. You know, (laughs) because, because athletics is what got me out of one life and into another life. And so I'm always having to, to your point, they're building their life and, and really trying to find the way to honor that. So I, I, I really appreciate that. But sometimes privately, it's like, you have to really look at yourself and go, Oh, wow. I'm so putting all my stuff on them uh, and all of, you know, projecting what has worked for me on them over and over instead of letting them do it their unique way. For sure. And and there's a couple of different things in that. One is that there's a a natural tendency. We see this in a lot of data and we see this in our, in my world of social science where parents, they, they, they project their autobiography onto the blank screen of their kids. And it's like, I'm, it's like, I'm a, like a super eight film on, onto the kid. Right. And it's like, and then, and then it's they, the kid, the screen doesn't behave the way the screen is supposed to behave. You're like, hold still. I'm trying to project my life onto you for Pete's sake. I mean, you have so much more going for you than I ever had for me. So finally you can become the person that I wanted to be. And by the way, I'm not immune from this. I remember at one point, my oldest son, he was having like problems in college, like everybody has in college. Right. And, and, and it, and, and I remember I, I was really, really frustrated with him. He's this junior year in, in college. And look, I'm supposed to be an expert in this, but man, I, we all have feet of clay. And I said, at this very weak moment, I said, do you realize how much we've worked for this? <laughs> and then I thought, whoa, what just came out of my mouth? I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, it's, 
Of course, did I work hard, but I didn't work hard for him to go to Princeton University. I made a living and paid for his tuition. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous that I should put it this way. What I was doing was projecting the, my own insecurities. I mean, I didn't get into a good college. I got tossed out of college when I was 19. The reason I became a professional French horn player is because I wasn't doing the work in college. I didn't do my required classes. I was taking North Indian classical drumming and Indonesian dance instead of my required classes. And they're like, maybe you should pursue your excellence elsewhere, young man. And, and I always want... You know, I come from an academic family. My dad was a professor. Yeah. My father, my grandfather was a professor. And, I, and my and my son, oh, holy cow, he was doing all this stuff that I always wanted to do. And then, but look, that's that's what it means to be a parent is being really, really super self-aware. I mean, it's it's just, it's, it's never ending. So let's go back to your, you know, you're 21 and um, pieces that are normal or okay, easy for you to play all of a sudden start becoming a little bit more challenging. And, you, you yeah. know, uh, you start ex- having an experience that sort of redirected your path. Yeah, that's for sure. I fell off the stage at Carnegie Hall in the middle of a concert. Yeah. Yeah. That's an experience. I mean, it's like anytime anybody says that they have a bad day at work, I'm like, a little respect here. <laughs> and I fell off the stage in my Carnegie Hall debut into the audience. I mean, it was so horrible, what but it was just, what it was just crazy. It was this crazy thing. What happened was I was a very nervous public speaker. Now I do 175 speeches a year. Now, and the reason is because everything is easy in life when you're not holding a French horn. But back then, you know, I would, I was so nervous about speaking in public and I was giving this concert. It was going really well. But I had to speak and I was so nervous when it came my time to speak. I was kind of walking unsteadily toward the audience and holding my French horn and I wasn't watching my feet. And I got too close to the edge of the stage and, and you know, one foot hit the lip of the stage and down I went like six feet onto the instrument. It was hor- It was embarrassing. The New York Times was there. It was, it was bad. It was, it was, it was a bad day. But um, but it was kind of emblematic because at the time it was this weird thing. And since I've, I have a lot of friends, professional athletes that I've talked to because of the work that I do and, you know, human performance. And a lot of them will say this too, that a lot of uh, professional athletes, they'll get better and better through their teens. I mean, cyclists, for example, I've, seen, I've met a lot of cyclists, for example, and the cyclists are supposed to get better through their twenties. And they're supposed to really start peaking in their late twenties, even early thirties. But what happens to a lot of them, they don't quite know why is because of the mechanics or whatever. Some of them peak way early and go into decline in their early 20s, and they're just not going to make it. And they don't know mm-hmm. until they get there. And it happens in classical music. It happens in a lot of different fields, but mostly in really physically uh, demanding fields where you have to play an instrument, you have to do a sport. And that was happening to me. And I went to the best teachers in the world, and you know, things were getting harder. I was getting worse, practice all the time, getting worse. And I couldn't figure it out until finally... You know, I, I was, I got married when I was in my mid twenties, like a lot of people do. And my wife, who's always been my guru, she says, we we got married in Barcelona. I was in the Barcelona symphony by this time. And, and she's like, why don't you just do something else? And like, what are you talking about? Cause that's like, that's like, I belong to a cult and you're asking me to not be in the cult. You know, that, that that's like, basically you're saying, be a different person. And it didn't mean anything to me. I couldn't even understand the context of the question because who was Arthur Brooks? Arthur Brooks, famous French horn player. That was the problem. And she got to the, the root of the problem by saying, why don't you just be Arthur Brooks? And I'm like, I don't get it. It's like cutting off my arm. I, I don't, and, and it took me, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. Well, what would happen? And so secretly, I went to college by correspondence to see what else there was by correspondence. And I got a bachelor's degree by correspondence a month before my 30th birthday. And it changed my life. College changed my life. <laughs> and I never yeah. set a foot in a classroom. Well, uh, so I'm, I'm just going to add, like, you have been a Harvard professor. So let, let's just yeah. jump ahead for a second. Because <laughs> you, you do talk about in Strength to Strength that you were secretly or maybe like a little more quiet about having an unconventional education. Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting. So you, you, you work with a prestigious uh, institution yeah. and yet you still have this thing of like, Oh, but I had an unconventional and I'm only bringing that up because I think most people have what they perceive as unconventional paths. Yeah. And just to remind everyone that it's like, yeah. we, you know, we don't know. So, so at, 
after going to school, you know, what does it, what does it look like for you? I mean, I, I know you, again, you've had a lot of careers, you're, you know, part of the think tank, the president of the American Enterprise Institute and things like that. How does it, how does it go along for you? How does that transition go from like, okay, musician, professional musician, and then all these other careers? Yeah. So that was a hard transition. And, and the way it worked was, you know, I've always had this kind of philosophy that you get to invent your life. So I've always been very much of the view and anybody who's listening to your show is going to agree with this. I mean, everybody's listening to me say, you get to invent your life. Everybody's nodding their heads. They wouldn't be listening to the show if they didn't want to invent their lives, if they didn't want to improve their lives, if they didn't want to be the captain of their own ship. But it's hard to do. And it's especially hard to go from uneducated or really un, uh, not traditionally educated classical musician to going into academia. So what I did was when I finished mm -hmm. my bachelor's degree, and I was really, really interested in social science, behavioral stuff, how human beings tick. Um, so I did an, a master's degree at night, uh, without, again, without telling anybody. And then I'm like, I got to make a decision here. So I left music. And my wife was supporting me because at this point I'm 31. And I started my PhD. And I started my PhD in policy analysis, which is, you know, multifaceted social science, very mathematical thing. It was so hard. It was so hard because I'd never taken any math courses before. So I was getting tutoring all over the place and just doing the absolute best that I could. But I was convinced that if I figured out how the system worked, I could make it work for me. And after a couple of years, it started to get easier. And, and then by the time I finished and finished my PhD, and, and, and be, I became a professor at that point. And I had made this switch, like as big as you can get, classical French horn player to PhD social scientist college professor. And then I was like, you know what? It's not the last change. I'm going to do this every 10 years. I decided that I'm going to have 10-year cycles where I'm going to take my career down to the studs and do it again and do it again and do it again. Because I, it's so interesting to have two lives. All of the good parts about being a French horn player, I poured it over into becoming a public speaker and writer and, and, and professor. And then I went, after 10 years of that, I went and I became the CEO of a, of a think tank in Washington, D.C. For people who aren't nerds and so they don't know what a think tank is a think tank is a it's like a university without students it's a research institution and that does work to to improve public policy you know economic policy foreign defense policy education health you name it in washington dc one of the oldest think tanks in the world we have 300 employees now here's the big challenge with that i had to go from teaching university students to becoming a chief executive with a big workforce and i had to raise 50 million dollars a year in philanthropy like going and asking people for for money. I'd never done that before. I'd never asked for a dollar before. So that was the big thing I had to figure out. So I did that for 10 years, went really well. And then I thought when I was in my, you know, my early to mid fifties, I was thinking, okay, what's next? And I just thought about it and yeah. I discerned about it. I, I was in a lot, I, I meditated and I was in prayer about this for a long time. I'm a Catholic. And so that's a really important part of my life. And so I spent a lot of time in prayer and I thought, okay, so what's next? And I decided I was going to dedicate literally the rest of my life to lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love using my intellect and ideas. And so I retired as a CEO and I took a senior professorship at Harvard University at the business school and at the policy school, the Harvard Kennedy School. And, and now I teach happiness. I teach happiness to students and I write about it in the Atlantic. And I'm telling you, Gabby, I'm happier than I've ever been. So some of that, you know, also I, I do feel that if we have these opportunities to move into things, I don't want to say gracefully, because I don't mean it in a passive way, but there is something when we sort of start getting into a, a rhythm of our own essence and, and you know, like you're, you're trying to connect people and make them happy. I mean, this is very fruitful. I, I guess I want to ask a couple of questions before we we move on to, uh, you know, is it Catella? Like, how did you get to these two, you know, big curves in our life is first of all, Esther, you couldn't have done this without the right partner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what is it that she was able to provide to allow the, you know, this room for you to land in all, in all of these, you know, cause you had to have, it's already scary enough to try to do it. Yeah. How do you, you know, how does, she, what does she do? What environment is created that can encourage someone to, to be able to do that? It's a great question. Gabby, you're the first person who's ever asked me that question before. And there's an actual answer to it. The right partner 
for somebody who's a life entrepreneur is somebody who helps you understand that nothing matters. Nothing matters. It's all just fluff. It's all just the world, you know, and, and if you fall on your head, it doesn't matter. And if you fail, it doesn't matter. And if you go bankrupt, it doesn't matter. Because what matters at the end of the day is love. And love is going to be there. That's the safety net. I have this perfect safety net. Not money, you know, not security, not a home. I have love. That was what it was. I knew that no matter what, no matter what, no matter how much of a failure I was ever going to be, which some days it was certainly going to feel that way, that my wife's going to love me exactly the same. And that no matter how good it was, that she wasn't going to really care. And it was weird because I remember she said, you know, we were preparing for From Strength to Strength, the book that we're going to talk about here. That, and, and, and she said, what do you hope happens? And I said, I hope it's the number one New York Times bestseller. And, 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 and she said, you shouldn't care about that. And she, and, and she said, I don't care about that. And I said, well, let's just see. And it was, and she didn't. <laughs> she literally didn't care about it. She didn't ask about it. I had to bring it up. <laughs> well, because the part that you were in charge of was done. You wrote the book. You did the book, right? Like, I think that that's the other thing is when you do it because you want to and you set it out there, how people respond, it's kind of, you can't, you're not going to control that anyway. So you yeah. did the part you were, you know. But that's yeah. do, what I mean. Do you think you think Esther just was born this way? Because very few people, I I think that's something that a lot of times it takes us a lot of work to get to. Yeah, um, it's very unusual to have someone who is there that early in life. Yeah, she loved me unconditionally from the very beginning. Now we had a we had a weird beginning. That was an unusual beginning. It was a very entrepreneurial beginning. We met actually at a concert. Um, that I was playing in France. I was on tour in the Burgundy region of France. And I saw this girl who was like, like I was, and she was smiling at me. I'm like, that's awesome. So I went to, like, I'm a red-blooded 23 or 24-year-old man. And I go talking to her, and like, because she's so beautiful. And it turns out she speaks zero words of English. And, and I can only figure out through an interpreter that she's not French. She's actually from Barcelona. She's Spanish. And so I, I, you know, I figured out how to conv convince her to go to dinner with me, which was unbelievably awkward. I mean, no words in common because I speak no, spoke nothing but English, and she didn't speak English at all. So, and and you know, I went home and I told, I called my dad after a week. I'd gone out with her three times that week, and I went home and I called my dad. I said, Dad, I think I met the girl I'm going to marry. He's like, Great. When can I meet her? I said, Well, I got problems. You know, I got problems. She's not in the United States. She doesn't speak English, and she has no idea we're going to get married. And I don't want a restraining order put on me. So, um, <laughs> so what I did was I put a plan together to m move to Spain to get a job in an orchestra in Spain and to learn the language so that I could propose to her. That was what I was, you know, because obviously you can't, you know. And so I did, and I studied Spanish and Catalan, and, and I you know, you know, made a living in the whole thing. It took me a year and a half to close that deal, by the way. But we just celebrate, we're, we're, this year we celebrate our 30, 31st wedding anniversary. So it really, really started. So she's the kind of person who's like, yeah, why not? whatever. Yeah, totally. Good. Let's do that. Yeah. Married? Yeah. Foreigner? Yeah. Seems nice. You know, and, and, and sometimes there's a cosmic convergence. This is not soulmates. This is a kind of a, an intuition is what it comes down to. But look, she, she didn't have the criteria to love me conditionally from the very beginning because we didn't even speak the same language for like years. I mean, our, our, com our communication has marginally improved in the past 31 years. But it's the kind of thing where how could she put conditions? She couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand her. And so we just like, I guess we're just going to love each other. I guess that's kind of what it's going to be. <laughs> I have to say, though, when I hear that, though, there's something very beautiful in we overcomplicate everything sometimes. Yeah. And maybe when you're learning to communicate in just the really essential way, and then obviously there's a connection in chemistry between the two of you that's natural, clearly, but that there's something so powerful about the big chunks. And isn't everything else sometimes the noise? Like, I don't like the way you said that to me. It's like, really? You know, like you've, if you've been in a long relationship after a while, you, I feel like you, try to stay focused on, is this really important? Like, yeah. is this what we, you know, need to focus on? Yeah. yeah. Because that really struck me in the book. It was very loud and clear. I was like, this woman is a, an interesting partner to be able to, or just to navigate this with somebody.
This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I got I did some research and what I love about them is, so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law. And Ritual really knows how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They, they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time and energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It don't know what to do. And it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Ritual's multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's Ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month. So strength to strength, you, something, you read something, you see something. And like I said, I don't know if I jumped the gun. Is it Catella? I don't know. Some report about these mm. sort of natural arcs in our life. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know because taking on books is no joke and, you know, sort of saying, I'm going to really dive in and write about this. So, you know, what prompted that? Well, so as I've gone from these, you've talked about these arcs of, you know, different things going through stages, going from different, you know, jobs and careers, uh, pretty radical shifts. One of the things that I noticed is that what used to be easy for me wasn't. So for example, when I first came out of graduate school with my doctorate, I was writing these very technical mathematical articles, so technically mathematical that, that, or mathematically technical, I should say that I can't read them today. I don't actually know what I was writing about when I was 35. I could probably kind of get the groove back a little bit, but not entirely. And I noticed that there was something different going on. However, I noticed that by the time I was in my early 50s, I was much better at explaining very complex concepts than ever before. I had much better pattern recognition. I I was exhibiting a lot more wisdom. So I started looking at what the, what the social psych literature had to say about that. And it turns out there was a guy named Raymond Cattell. He was a, a social psychologist, a British social psychologist from the mid-20th mid century who noticed that there's two types of geniuses out there. So there's geniuses who peak really early. They, they show preternatural gifts in their teens. In their 20s, they get better and better. They, through their 10,000 hours, what they're good at, they become unbelievably good at. And, and they peak usually at their late 30s and then start to decline. And these are the people that have focus, they have innovative capacity, they have working memory, they have high levels of creativity, especially in sciences, but not exclusively in the sciences. But they find that they start burning out on what they do in their early 40s because they're not making progress anymore. So this is the key thing. Your dentist, who's like a really good dentist, weirdly starts taking Fridays off when he's 43. And you're like, what? Why is he taking? I thought he loved being a dentist. And the answer is, He doesn't like it as much anymore, and he can't quite put his finger on it, but it's because he's no longer making progress in his skill. You can't tell. He's not drilling the wrong tooth in Gabby's mouth, but he notices, and he's the one who's really the person he has to please. Okay, that's the first kind of genius. The second type of genius blooms much later, and you'll find geniuses that 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 are unbelievable at teaching. 
they're really good at, at uh, for example, putting ideas together that already exist. These are the historians. These are the professors. These are the, the team leaders. These are the CEOs that are real coaches. What you find is that the early kind of genius is the startup entrepreneur. The later kind of genius is the venture capitalist. The early kind of genius is the academic researcher. The later kind of genius is the master teacher. The early genius is the star litigator. The later genius is the managing partner of the law firm that makes the law firm unbelievably rich. What it is, is what Cattell called fluid intelligence in the first curve and crystallized intelligence in the second curve. It's your brain's curve and your wisdom curve. Your wisdom curve actually increases through your 30s and 40s. It gets really high in your 50s and 60s and stays high in your 70s and 80s. So here's the trick, Gabby. You need to be on your fluid intelligence curve and in your 40s, walk across to your crystallized intelligence curve. And that's what your career or, or job or life transition should be. So you, you give a lot of examples in the book. You talk about Darwin going, you know, having his, his own frustration at the end of his life uh, or feeling dissatisfied because he couldn't continue, you know, sort of this hyper achieving mentality. Um, and even, and I think this is important too, that the chances, if you've been identified at something good early in your life, there is a bigger chance at the end of your life's arc that you will be more disappointed or unhappy than let's say somebody who lives, you know, quote, a regular life, whatever that means, or never was overly celebrated as like, you're extra smart and talented and athletic and, and whatever. So it's, it's the, it's the, those relationships and the, and that jump that you're talking about that really can, can help us avoid that. But, you know, when I, when I was reading it, I thought, most of us get bogged down, like we're on a track, we're rolling. Do you think inside somebody knows it might be time? Like you said it specifically like in your 40s, but let's just say we didn't know about fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence and sort of these curves. Don't you think if we paid attention inside that most of us would go like, I think I've done this? Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that people start burning out is because they've done it and it's not getting easier and it's not getting more innovative and it's not getting better. So burnout, when you start feeling burnout in something you're unbelievably good at, that's the first sign you're on the wrong side of the fluid intelligence curve. And it's it's, it's time to start thinking about getting on the second curve. Now, that doesn't mean you got to change jobs radically like me. I mean, that's just insanity. That, that it might mean you need to change the focus of what you do. It means it might mean that you need to change, you know, going from being the hotshot sort of cowboy in your company to being the person who coaches and who, who forms teams in your company. There's lots of ways to do this. There's, as we say in my business, your results may differ. But the one way they're not going to differ is that you're not going to be on your fluid intelligence curve when you're 70. It's just not going to happen. You're going to be on it, but you're going to be in the basement on it. And you're going to feel chained to it, and it's going to feel like it's too late. And I've got case after case in this book about people who did it wrong. You, you talked about Darwin. I mean, Darwin, he was, the, I mean, he was the king of the mambo for science when he was in his late 20s. I mean, he discovered, the, I mean, he, he presented the theory of evolution when he was 27 years old, and, or the beginnings of it at least, and he dined out on that for the next 30 years. But he was not able after that to come up with new ideas, and he couldn't figure out why. He didn't have the mathematical capacity. He didn't have the innovation in his bones. And so he just started doing derivative work for the rest of his life. And he, he died considering himself to be a disappointment, one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. The key thing is that the people who have gotten older and are really happy and continue to feel successful have migrated from that first curve to the second curve, from the innovation curve to the instruction curve. They go from being like poets to becoming historians. That's what I'm talking about. So I just want to look at this a couple different ways. When you're young, unless you're someone like you who you knew early, you had this passion, it's already hard enough to jump on our first curve for most people. Yeah. Like, what do you want, you know, that, you know, question, what do you want to do with your life kind of thing? I mean, I, I always think people are more fortunate when they, they're either, you know, raised in a way to ask that question all along and invited to do that. Right. But I think for a lot of people, it's hard to find their thing. Yeah. Right. So so let's say they're on their thing. They finally put it together. And, and now we're saying to them, hey, and by the way, you got to find another thing yeah. or a different version of it. Um, what would you say to people that are like, holy cow, you know, Arthur, I just I finally put it together. 
And now you're saying I should look ahead in all the other ways I'd like to contribute. Because mm. I thought about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, a lot of people struggle with that. I find in my students that they, they think the world is supposed to tell them what their passion is. And they, they're, they're very envious of people like you who, you know, in college, you found out you were the superstar athlete and then you were recruited to be a professional athlete, which is everybody's dream. Now, it turns out it's not that great in a lot of ways. It's not that fun all the time. And, you know, professional athletes are not the happiest people, you know, when I talk to professional athletes, because woe be unto you if you make something fun into your job, it's going to become a job. So there's a lot that goes into that, complicated stuff that goes mm -hmm. into that for sure. But a lot of people are, they, they think the world is going to roll around in their feet. So they say like, okay, I'm going to go to this, the fanciest college I can get into. And, and they're in college, I'm going to figure out what I really like. I'm going to take a bunch of classes and then I'm going to get really jazzed by something. It'll make it my major. And then I come out and do that for a living. And then they take a bunch of classes, but they're still not passionate when they come out. So they take a job after college. And then after a couple of years, like maybe I'll get a master's degree. Then the world will tell me what I'm supposed to like. I get MBA students at the Harvard business school and their last semester of their last year in my happiness class. And they're like, I'm still not completely sure. Of course you're not. And, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. The idea of finding this abiding passion that, you know, the world is going to reveal itself to you. That's, that's not right. And part of the reason is because your passion is about living. It's about loving. It's not about what actually makes your paycheck. That's just, that's sort of details, you know, and figuring out, for example, that you're very interested in science. That's a lot more important than that your passion is, would be working at a bioengineering firm in Boston. I mean, that's, that's just the expression of a particular passion. So learning about things that make you interested, that can make it possible for you to serve other people, that make you feel more alive than you were when you weren't doing it. These are the ways that I work through my students to find the things. And these give you categories of things. Everybody can do a bunch of things. There's a huge number. You just got to find the right category. You don't have to find exactly the right thing. And then once you've got that category, have some fun, you know, do some different things, you know, it, it, your first job shouldn't be, last you more than about 18 months anyway, knock yourself out, go live in a couple of different places, you know, live a little and then move. And, and then sometime when you're in your late thirties and early forties and mid forties, start thinking about migrating the way that you do it to get from that first curve to the second curve. This lowers the stakes. Yeah. And if it, forgive me for not remembering the group in New Mexico, it's like the modern, like the mentor group, the new, um, the modern elder Academy. That's Chip Conley's group. Yeah. Correct. So if someone, let's say is, is in the, in their kind of declining off their fluid intelligence and they're sort of looking, what would you, what could we sort of invite them to look at, um, as ways now to sort of how would I explore then this next curve? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to do that. Here's one of the exercises that I give when I'm coaching executives, for example. And I talk to a lot of people in their early 40s that are, that are thinking about this and, and, and some who are a little bit late to the game like I was, you know, and I, <laughs> so here's how I think about it. I, you know, one of the things that, that we know from the literature is that, that you're going to get your heart's desire. I mean, I know it sounds crazy. It sounds like only like, you know, Gabby Reese gets her heart's desire by being a professional volleyball player. But, you know, the truth is that wasn't your heart's desire, probably. And the truth is that you're probably with your husband and your children, you are getting your heart's desire. I mean, it's, it's, we get our heart's desire is most people do. If you want to make more money than your friends, you probably will. If you want to have better relationships than other people, you probably will. You, you put where you're, where your heart is, that's where your that's where your your treasure is stored up. This is the biblical principle, but it's a principle of philosophy in life. Okay, so what I do with my students is I say, okay, imagine yourself in five years. So you know, for you know, some people are listening to us; they're twenty five years old. Imagine you're thirty. I'm fifty eight. So imagine I'm imagining I'm sixty three, which is like freaking me out, kind of. Anyway, so so imagine yourself in five years and you're happy. You know what that means right? I mean, you know how that feels at very least. Now, write down, it takes a little while, write down the five things that are the big reasons that you are happy in your, in your own estimation, okay? In your future self, what are the five things that would need to be going on in your life that are going to lead you to say, I'm happy. I'm happier than I've ever been. Okay. Now, after you've done that, ask yourself this question, what am I most actively managing to? The answer is probably number four and five. You're probably not actively managing number one and two. 
because that has to do with stuff that you're hoping that the world will just do to you. I'll meet the love of my life. I'll just suddenly have a better relationship with my parents. I'll start, you know, making, I'll, I'll be better friend than I was before. Manage that actively and you will find your vocation. And then magic will happen because of these other things about your passion around your worldly vocation. Then it will find you. It will, it's, but it's not going to find you when you're not doing what you need to do for the enterprise of your own life optimally. It's funny how it's in conflict, though, because when we can when we can tune everything out and really get in touch with what we want and like, it always seems not enough or in the world's view, too small, too quiet. You know, it's not doesn't have a big sexy around it. And it's interesting when we and you talked about, um, you know, sort of people, the Harvard study, what's the oldest study there is about, you know, this group of men, some some from the university, but also other high risk group yeah. where they followed them. And they said, listen, some of them, this study is like, they'd be in their eighties and nineties, I think. And they're studying their grandchildren, but we could have told you when they were 50 based on the, their connections, who was going to work out and feel pretty good by the time they were 80 yeah. based on relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I don't know where it it goes when I, when I thought about this book, you think about culture, community, civilization, humanity, it would make perfect sense that people of my age and your age would be there to be of service, to be mentors, to coach, to uplift, to share, because it would seem that that's how it would work well. Right. That it would, it wouldn't be like, Hey, don't, you got to knock me off the mountain. It'd be like, Hey, I've done this. I, I know some stuff I can help you elevate you. So when you talk about strength to strength, I feel like it also just seems like the way a real community and civilization would work. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, it seems like it's the way it's supposed to be, but somehow we don't, we don't, uh, teach it, celebrate it, cultivate it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And part of it is that there's a there's a conspiracy. Um, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there is a conspiracy. Now, it is the conspiracy is Mother we'll, Nature. We'll buy more when we're miserable. Yeah, no, no. Well, what happens is Mother Nature is conspiring against our happiness. A lot of people think, you know, back in the day, um, uh, the hippies used to say, "If it feels good, do it." That is like the stupidest advice ever. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That is life ruining advice. Mother Nature wants one thing. That Gabby and Arthur and everybody listening to Gabby and Arthur are supposed to pass on their genes. That's what Mother Nature wants. That's it. And it turns out, like, that's insanity. I mean, to begin with, I don't want seventy-five children. You know, that's not what I. That's not even what I want. But my 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 biological imperative is to pass on my genes. Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. So to pass on your genes, what you want, what your natural tendency is to want, is four things: money, power, pleasure and prestige. Those are the big four. Those are idols in life. And your, your intuition, your, the limbic system of your brain, which is the ancient part of your brain evolved over a 40 million year period, is always saying money, power, pleasure, fame, money, power, pleasure, fame. If you get that, you'll be happy. No, you won't. Now, your limbic system is amplified by social media and the entertainment complex and marketing and the economy and et cetera. But all that stuff is just an extension of our brains. Mother Nature's at fault here. So you got to stand up to Mother Nature. That's what we actually have to do. And it turns out that we need to go from that for those idols. That's what St. Thomas Aquinas in 1265 called those the idols of life. You got to turn from those to the the four that actually are your happiness 401k plan. (laughs) And that's faith, family, friends, and work that does just two things. You serve others and you earn your success. That's it. I don't care if you're an electrician or a college professor or a volleyball player or a podcaster. You have to earn your success and you have to serve other people. It's not a, you got to make enough money to support your family, obviously, but high levels of money, low levels of money, indistinguishable when it comes to the joy that comes Mm -hmm. from that. And then you can't over index on work. You also have to have in your portfolio the faith part, which by the way, I don't mean my faith. I mean a transcendent view of life, something bigger, more spiritual. And then family life, which is critically important. Don't walk away from your family, especially because of politics. That's stepping over $100 bills to get to nickels. And friendship. And for all of you strivers out there, (laughs) real friends, not deal friends. And you all know the difference. 
I love that, that you said that you were on the phone call and your son is the one who was like, is that a real friend or a deal friend? And I think it is important where, especially if men are set up, I think women congregate and have friendships more easily and and maintain them. And you talk about that, but that especially for men and, and really encouraging them. And I don't mean like just getting hammered at the golf course, but like real friends that you can talk to and, uh, and say, Hey, I'm going through this or what do you think about that? And so especially as, as we get older now, you talked about your grandfather naturally going from one curve to the next. Yeah. That was sort of an interesting observation. But I just, I, I'm curious about something in the your pursuit is you you mentioned that you're driving in the car with your father, and he says like he's got half a tank of gas, and you're going somewhere, and he's like, I you know I think we're going to run out of gas or something. Okay. Um, is there is do you think that you've had any reaction? like all your work and all of this, was any of this a reaction to, um, to something like something about that? Yeah, it's a good question. And you know, the, the one thing that we know where the answer is yes, is that 50% of your happiness is genetic. So almost every party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So between 40 and 80% of almost every part of your personality is genetic. And we know this from, from identical twins that were adopted as separate families and reunited as adults and given personality tests. Now that's actually incredibly empowering news. Why? Because all of genetics is both proclivities and switches. Here's what I mean. You know, we find from the right. literature that 60% of the tendency toward alcohol abuse is genetic, right? But I have a, I have a behavioral switch that can turn that to zero. It's like magic. It's called yes. don't drink, right? And by the way, that's why I don't drink because I've got tons of alcoholism in my family, so I don't drink alcohol. Yeah. The reason that I, I spend an hour a day in the gym is because I know exactly what my genetic proclivities are. They're, they're not to be healthy. <laughs> and so I actually have to work my switches. So if you have gloomy genetics, then you need better habits. That's the empowerment on this, okay? So that's the key thing on this. So for sure, I'm, you know, my dad, I am my dad. My dad was very gloomy. He struggled a lot. He was, you saw the dark clouds and everything and he died really young. So what does that mean? I need better happiness hygiene. And guess what? I'm a social scientist. I specialize in this. One of the reasons I do this is it's not research, Gabby, it's me search because I want to, and I'm using my switches to supersede my genetics. So yeah, oh yeah, I see a lot of my dad and me. I see a lot of my mom. My mom was a professional artist of, of, you know, some renowned in the Pacific Northwest where I grew up in Seattle. And, uh, and, you know, it's like, I'm a combination for good and for ill, but I've got the data and I know my habits of faith and family and friendship and work that serves other people, that these are the switches that, that render the bad parts of the genetics kind of unimportant. It's a great, it's a great point. I, I also, um, maybe you could just share a little bit. You talk about your relationship with India. I Mm. thought that was really was it just a, you went there and, and I know you've gone there uh, many times, but maybe you could just share what it is that your experience and why it's so important. It's one of the things that's really important for a broad perspective and also greater happiness is getting inputs on parts of life that are not, that are, that are not native to you, that are maybe even a little bit foreign to you. You need to have your world rocked a little bit and you need to do that, that uh, substantially and regularly. And so for me, part of that was actually trying to broaden my intellectual and spiritual horizons by going to India. Now, I went to India for the first time when I was 19 on a concert tour. And it was wild because this was like 1983. And it was, I mean, it was the poverty, which I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it was just, it's like, I couldn't believe what I was looking at, as a matter of fact. So, and, but I started going back uh, when I was in my 40s. And it was very different country. India has been a, a case study in successfully bringing people into the middle class through market dynamics. It's just unbelievable. The free enterprise system has, has pulled maybe 400 million people out of poverty in India. It's incredible. You know what, what has happened. It's not, it's not poor though. It's still poor, but it's not poor the way it was before. But when I started going back to India professionally in my late four, in my mid forties, I started seeking out spiritual teachers that could expand my horizons. And so I would regularly I went to Dharamsala a bunch of times. So, you know, I've been working with His Holiness the Dalai Lama very closely for the past 10 years. We've written together. I've interviewed him in public many times. He's guest lectured in my class at Harvard from Zoom during the coronavirus epidemic. And, and he's been incredibly helpful to me. I've studied meditation with his Tibetan Buddhist monks at his monastery 
Um, I've also in Southern India sought out uh, Hindu masters that can bring me ideas that I just never would have found. And they're still, they're still relatively by Western standards inaccessible. They're not on the internet. And part of it is because a lot of the stuff has never been translated from Sanskrit or from Hindi even. It's just been, it just exists in the minds of these deep religious believers. And so I go there a lot because I want, I want my world rocked. I want to find out where I'm wrong. I want to find out where I can expand. I want to have more love for more ideas. I want a bigger heart. So, you know, when we're younger and you can really relate to this and it's like, Hey, you, we're supposed to be good at something, yeah, right? Like somewhere this got shoved on us. And, um, I guess, and then, you know, you go through that and you realize that it's the exact thing that can crush you if you don't get away from it quick enough. Yeah. And so I, I, I guess I just wanted to bring up sort of this delicate teeter-totter kind of seesaw between striving and not neglecting your entire life, but then also being prepared to completely downshift and live very differently. It's it because it, it is it's they're they're almost in contrast. I understand it pretty intimately myself. Not bad. Where you know when you have a family and you're of service and you know, I have people that come here and train and they're in the NFL or the NBA and it's like, Hey, it's just about helping them. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying like not even a monetary exchange. So, you know, a real exchange, like just, I'll show you what I know. And then this other, I don't want to say bittersweet memory of like, yeah, but man, I was a sharp end of a stick and really finely tuned and like really, you know, dialed in or whatever, I guess maybe I can ask you just how, you know, that, that transition and always kind of balancing those two. Cause it's also when you're trying to be honest with yourself. For sure. And, and what we're talking about is the fine line between excellence and obsession. And, and you find any professional athlete, any professional musician, any professional, anybody who's really great at what they do. And they're going to be, they're going to be just walking that line. And sometimes they're going to be on the wrong side of it. The happiest ones are excellent and not obsessed, and the unhappiest ones are way over on the obsession side. Now, why is that? It has to do with a, a, a neurotransmitter, a neuromodulator in the brain called dopamine. Dopamine is behind mm-hmm. all addictions. All addictions, they all work the same way. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that gives you desire. It gives you anticipation. It doesn't give you reward. It gives you anticipation of reward. And so when you get addicted to something, it's like, I got to do it. I got it. It's going to be so good when I do it. It doesn't matter if it's actually good when you do it. You just have to think it's going to be good when you do it because dopamine lies. Dopamine is a liar and it's, 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 it's whispering in your ear how great it's going to be. And so this is what lies behind gambling addiction, which is really bad, obviously. Methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, cigarettes, pornography, all these really bad addictive things, they have, they have dopamine behind them. And we get incredibly adept at producing dopamine. We become dopamine monkeys is what we're good at. Okay, now let's get to... Gabby and Arthur and all of the success obsessed dopamine monkeys out there. You have an addiction called the success addiction Mm -hmm. that comes from the self-objectification. Usually early on, get the success, get the cookie, get the reward, start again, run, 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 run. That's the obsession part of it. And what it does, here's the reason that it's a real problem. I mean, to begin with, you'll never be successful enough. You just won't. Right. You'll never be. That's why you find these people like, I mean, I don't I've met Elon Musk, but I don't really know him or Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. or people who it's like the next thing, the next thing, bigger, bigger. I want bigger. That's dopamine, man. And and they do great things for our society. But do you want to be married to that? Do you want? I mean, right. And the reason that that's a problem and this gets to the main part of your question, all addictions are relationships. What you find with people who are obsessed with their success is that that's their main love relationship, not with themselves, but with their own success and the vision of their success. So that's what they're chasing is true love. You know, when I'm totally successful, then I'm finally going to have true love. I'm gonna, I want true love. I'm finally going to have true love. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, when I make a movie, number one New York Times bestseller, I got an Oscar. You know, I have you know, a million downloads a month on my podcast. Then I'll find true love. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the dopamine lying to you. And that's the success addiction, which is substituting for true human relationships. What you need to do is to recognize it, what we call metacognition, where you're aware so that you can manage this yourself. You can 
open up the relationship that you're occupying with the success addiction and you can occupy it with real human love with your friends with your romantic loves with your family relationships you cannot do this without without actual love Arthur I could talk to you all day but I'll I just want to end this interview with something that I also feel was really important where you talked about resume virtues and eulogy virtues because uh, that was very clear. And and again, I just want to say this as somebody who has at times gotten attention and has not like there's something I have to be honest. I met my husband when I was 25 and I think it, besides being with him and having a family with him and I adore him. The other really great thing was that in real time, there would be a lot of situations where I got more attention, he got more attention. I was sometimes, I'm just his wife, I'm there to make his dinner. Like there's something when you can see it in real time of how unsustainable getting attention is yeah. that you you can take your teeth out of it a little bit. That yeah. I think that really not only helped me, but humbled me. And also I actually don't think it was my end goal. I think yeah. that I enjoyed being on a team. I enjoyed working hard. Um, but Anyway, my point is, is that I thought that that was also important because this thing that you're talking about, family, friendship, and faith, again, it's, it's very quiet mm -hmm. yeah. and it's, and it takes work. Like you're Lee, you know, you, when we get off here, you're, you have all your family, you know, coming there, your son, you know, your son's getting married. Um, someone's gonna have to take the garbage out. Like it's not, you know, ooh, ooh, sexy all the time. Yeah. And so when you when you talked about eulogy virtues and resume virtues, I, I thought that that was you know something that would be a, people would understand so clearly. Yeah, you know, and we talked for a, a minute ago about the exercise where you put the five things that are going to be making you happy, and nobody's dumb; they know what they are. But number one and two is your eulogy virtues. Now, what is that? That's the stuff that people say about you in your eulogy. Those are the things like if they got nothing to say about your family life, about she was a good mother, that she was a you know beloved friend, that she was a wonderful daughter. And all they can say was that, yeah, she was a good athlete. It's like, what a bummer. I mean, that's that's so depressing. Now, maybe on your on your on the kind of the happiness bucket list, I hate bucket lists. I've talked about that in the book, but but maybe but maybe being really successful professionally was on there, but it was four or five. Because if you're thinking clearly, one, two, and three are all these eulogy virtues. Your resume virtues are the things that you're always chasing because we care about social comparison and we care about prestige. Remember, the idols are money, power, pleasure, and fame. That all leads to eulogy virtues. What do we really want in life to be happy? Faith, family, friends, and work that serves. Those are those are eulogy virtues. Resume virtues right. are the first, and then and eulogy virtues, and that's the stuff they talk about. And I, you know, I I often think about this. I think about you know how am I spending my day today. And there's certain things I need to do. I got to make copy for my column or the Atlantic is going to be knocking on my door saying, yeah, you got a contract here. Yeah, I got to show up for my classes or, or you know, give, get on the plane and go to speeches, all the stuff that I actually do. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm thinking, what do I want him to say? That he had a million frequent flyer miles at my funeral? Not, not so much, as it turns out. I want him to say he was a great grandfather. He was a, he was a, a friend I could count on. He was... I want my wife to be saying he was the love of my life, not, you know, <laughs> he wrote some good books. <laughs> yeah. And you, and we, and, and I'll end on this is that you talk about that no matter who it's like, we're all, it's going to be forgotten. It's not going to really Always. matter. You talk about, you know, highly powerful CEOs. And then within six weeks, it's like their programs are out after they retire and barely anyone notices that they're gone. So I, I just, you know, thought that that was such an, a, such an essential part of the book besides that opportunity to learn, Oh, wait a second. I have a whole other curve I can jump on. And it's really different than the first, but it is so rewarding and can, kind of, I don't want to say carry me through my life, but that's the whole thing is like, I'd like to finish strong. And when I say that, I mean, a sense of well-being and peace and connection. Laird and I joke about it. Sometimes it'd be like having this incredible, you know, seven course meal. And then right at the end, it feels like for a lot of people, they just serve a tiny piece of 
like crap for dessert. Like you go through your whole life. And then if you haven't really dialed in some of this other stuff, you're sort of there on your own and who's coming to visit you yeah. and like, how do you feel? Yeah, totally. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and this is the, the second curve is the other focused curve. The second curve is the service curve. The second curve is the love curve is the way that you can mm-hmm. express the values that really are truly important to you. It's, you know, the, it's the, your root system, you know, your roots are intermingling and holding up the roots of other trees underneath you. Stop thinking about your leaves, start thinking about your roots. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what your second curve is really all about. You can do that professionally. You can do that personally. But the bottom line is this, you referred to that, that famous Harvard study, an 84-year study of Harvard graduates, but also people who didn't go to Harvard, and then their spouses and their kids. So it was men and women and people of different races and different social classes. And in the end, you know, the guy who ran it, a guy named George Valiant, who taught at Harvard Medical School for a long time, they said, how do you sum it up? How do you sum up 84 years of data? He's like, five words, happiness is love, full stop. The book is Strength to Strength and Arthur C. Brooks. Thanks for your time. And uh, I just appreciate that you put this together for us to read. Thank you. Thank you, Gabby. Wonderful to be with you and your listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click GabbyReese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at GabbyReese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating, and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.